Hello friends, welcome. Always delighted to have you along. And today we are going to dive into a fascinating conversation with Matthew Continetti, who is the author of a new book called The Right, The Hundred Year War for American Conservatism. And if you love presidents, if you love history, government, politics, fun facts, gosh, there is so much to glean from this conversation. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon. And welcome to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am super excited to have Matthew Continetti with me today. There is so much material here that I know everybody is going to just have a bunch of little brain tingle, mind blown moments. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I would love for you to start with an introduction and tell people who you are and more about the book that you've written that we're going to use as a jumping off point to talk about the American right. Sure. Well, I've been a journalist in Washington, DC for 20 years covering politics and policy, but over the years I developed a interest in history. I was a history major in college at the American enterprise Institute, where I'm a senior fellow. I've spent the past few years writing this book, the right the Hundred Year War for American Conservatism, which is really telling the story of American conservatism since the 1920s up to today. And that's become my passion is telling the story and uh, teaching it where I can and writing about it whenever I have the opportunity. Mm. So there's so much to talk about because when you know, colloquially, these in the the notions of what makes somebody right leaning is very intertwined with the modern Republican Party. And in some cases, that has been the case in the past. And in some cases, it hasn't. And the Republican Party has not represented the views of conservatives, or all of the conservatives. But I'd really like to start at the beginning sort of of where your book picks up. Um, Before we do that, though, I want to talk about something that a lot of people bring up, which is that the Republican Party is the party of Lincoln. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear your thoughts on the party of Lincoln and whether you think Lincoln would recognize himself in the modern Republican Party. Would he find a place in the American right? What is your view on that? Well, that's such a great question, uh, Sharon. Of course, the Republican Party was founded as a result of the uh, territorial crisis over slavery in the run-up to the Civil War. It was Lincoln's election in 1860 as the first Republican president, which was the inciting event of that war, which, which led to the secession of the Southern states. And Lincoln is of the primary figure in the history of the Republican Party. And indeed, I begin my book with an epigraph of Lincoln. How would he view today's Republican Party? I think he'd recognize elements of it. And I think he would not recognize other parts of it. Mm-hmm. What would he recognize? Well, in the epigraph to my book, The Right, I have a passage from Lincoln where he talks about how Lincoln represented in his view, a continuation of the principles of the American founding. Mm. And emancipation and equality were, in his view, the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And the Constitution was was kind of the continuation of those principles, but it was flawed and had to be fixed, right? And that was what Lincoln was setting out to do. I think he'd see in Republicans today a similar 
attitude, a reverential attitude toward the American founding mm -hmm. and kind of using mm -hmm. the founding as an anchor for most, most conservatives and Republicans. I think that's the case. I think Lincoln would also see similar attitudes in the party's embrace of equality of opportunity. Now, Lincoln was someone who believed that uh, you could set people free, and as long as you didn't prevent them from enjoying uh, the fruit of their labor, they would go far in life. And I think a similar spirit kind of imbues today's conservatives and many Republicans. There is a difference, though. Lincoln, I think, was much more open to using government to provide people the tools that they could advance in that race of life. And so when you think of things like the Homestead Act, right, or you think of things like the Land Grant Colleges Act, right, these are big government programs. They were different from many of the programs we have today in the way that they were constructed, but they were still the federal government doing what it could to help people realize their full potential. I would think that Lincoln would side with many people on the right today in viewing the American founding as one of the most consequential and positive developments in the history of humanity <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and trying to hold on and build the best, the best from that moment of the declaration and then a decade later of the constitution trying to bind the country together under those principles. How do we build on that? That's what I think Lincoln would be looking at and what conservatives should be looking at today. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I would like to ask you one question, which is something that I have seen debated in certain circles. Obviously, the modern um, Republican Democratic parties 
don't represent the same uh, viewpoints that they did at their inception. To me, that is obvious. <laughs> is that obvious to you? It's pretty obvious. Yeah, yes, I think there are thoughts in some circles that there was never, there's never been a difference. There's this pushback against the idea that Republicans believe different things now than they used to, that the Democratic Party has always been the party of white slave owners and racism, and that there has never been any change in the platforms of any of the parties. And guess what? There's problematic ideas in all political parties throughout history, 100% problematic people in all <laughs> political parties throughout history. No party has a lock on like we have had all the good ideas throughout time. But do you agree with the assessment that there has been a drift over time between who tended to vote with which party that the Democratic Party has become uh, something different especially at towards the end of the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, but that has changed who votes Republican and who votes Democrat? Oh, I absolutely agree with that idea. And, you know, why do we study history? History is change. And so mm -hmm. history is the study of change. And when we look at the history of American political parties in the 20th century, we see continuity in some regards, as we were discussing, but we also see great change and disruption. In particular, you look at the Democratic Party and what you see in the late 1960s, and I get into this in, in the right, how the, the Democratic Party that had given Franklin Delano Roosevelt his four terms in office, that had given Harry Truman his surprise victory, that had elected Kennedy in 60 and then elects Lyndon Johnson in one of the biggest landslides in American history in 1964. Well, because of the cultural disruptions of the 1960s, that Democratic Party came apart. Mm -hmm. It came apart. And a lot of the voters who had traditionally been associated with the Democratic Party began shifting into the Republican column. Mm -hmm. And when those voters started moving and voting for um, Republicans like Richard Nixon, Republicans like Ronald Reagan, that changed the Republican Party, too. I think it made the Republican Party more interested in cultural issues. It made mm -hmm. the Republican Party more populist in its the way that it viewed elites and experts. And so this shift, which starts in the late 1960s as a result of the pressures of Vietnam, the pressures of crime, arguments over civil rights, the inflation mm -hmm. uh, of, the, of that period, it's ongoing, but it definitely changed the basis of the two parties. The Republican Party subsumed a lot of those working class, mainly Catholic voters who had been part of the New Deal coalition. And the Democratic Party became more of the party of professionals, mm -hmm. people with uh, graduate degrees, people who are lawyers or professors or doctors, they started becoming more and more the base of the Democratic Party and shifting the party's views on cultural matters in the opposite direction of the mm -hmm. Republicans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's go back to the progressive era. And give everybody, if you people are a little rusty on their history, <laughs> what was happening during that time period? 
that gives rise to sort of really where you begin to trace Mm -hmm. the modern American right, the last hundred years of the American right, what was happening in the 1920s. Sure. Well, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, America was just filled to bursting with energy, with economic energy, with social energy, a huge influx of immigrants. There was a great also intellectual confidence that America could really improve its condition by using the tools of government, by using policy expertise to improve the lives of everyday people. And this came to be called progressivism, the progressive movement. And, you know, in the beginning decades of the 20th century in the United States, it wasn't clear which party would be the progressive party. Mm -hmm. Theodore Roosevelt, another very famous Republican president, he was in many ways a progressive. Mm -hmm. He thought that he needed to use government to bust the trusts and also to improve the condition of, of everyday Americans. But It really came to be that the progressive impulse found itself located in the Democratic Party under Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson. And Wilson has an extraordinary presidency, but like a lot of presidents, actually, his second term did not go well for him. And his second term, you know, he ran for re-election, Wilson did in 1916, promising to keep America out of the Great War, out of World War I. But sure enough, soon after he was inaugurated to his second term, events came to pass that he involved America in our first European war. Mm-hmm. And we, he, we sent an expeditionary force and participated in the First World War. Well, America was in many ways a big winner of the Great War, but the American people did not like our involvement in it. And indeed, our involvement in the Great War was accompanied by repression at home. The influenza Mm -hmm. pandemic of the era was a consequence of this war. There was also, again, that the I word inflation Mm -hmm. appears uh, as a result of the war economy that the Wilson administration started. And so by the end of the experience in World War I, Americans were ready for change and they embraced the Republican administration of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, who promised them normalcy. Normal. So that's a return to a, normalcy. A return to normalcy, something <laughs> we've been hearing a lot of lately, right? And that's where I begin my story in the right, is here we have it, a situation where we have the progressive Democratic Party really coming into its own, but we also have the Republican Party viewed as a conservative party. Now, Mm -hmm. it's interesting, and they didn't call themselves conservative, Mm -hmm. because in their minds, they were just standing, they were just standing for what had always been the case, right? They, 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 this is how they viewed Americanism is what Harding and Coolidge called it. That's what they were. In retrospect, we see that they were really the first real conservative administration there in the 1920s. So that's where I start my story. Mm. Warren Harding is such an interesting figure to me. So interesting. Like I could spend a whole podcast talking about Warren Harding. He has many, many things that make him an interesting historic figure. But he is also interesting because he does represent sort of that birth of these new conservative ideas, a return to normalcy. That has always struck me as a little bit of a unique campaign proposition. Right. Yeah. He's not <laughs> you know? the, he wasn't the last Republican president to have trouble with language. Uh, and so normalcy was kind of his own 
term, but that it kind of took on. And when you look at Harding and especially Coolidge, who assumes office mm-hmm. uh, in 1923, you really see kind of the matrix of what the American right stood for. And that was, again, this reverence for the Constitution and the Declaration, but also you see an embrace of free enterprise, low taxes, no regulation. But what's different and unique about these conservatives in the 1920s is they were also very non-interventionist. Mm-hmm. They, they did not like the experience in World War I. They did not think America should become, become involved overseas. Mm-hmm. They were very restrictionist when it came to immigration. The Congress and the, the Republican president signed these two restriction acts in the 1920s that basically ended immigration to, to the United States for about 40 years. Mm-hmm. And they were protectionist. They believed in the tariff and they wanted to insulate American industry from competition. And so that made them unique from some of the conservatives who came later. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I think when you look at the American right today, you actually see a strong resemblance between the right today and the right of the 1920s in all Mm -hmm. those respects. Absolutely. I totally, this is one of those topics where you can be like, oh, literally 100 years later, here we are back again. (laughs) It's a nice symmetry, right? (laughs) The echoes are so loud. It makes it seem like the music is actually playing in real time. (laughs) (laughs) What is it that you think, in your estimation, brought about that very anti-immigrant sentiment? that grew in the 1920s, because America had always been a country of immigrants. Immigrants were what made America. What do you think was the the genesis of that thought? Well, there were a lot of negative racial attitudes at the time. I mean, there was uh, what we would call racism directed primarily toward immigrants from East Asia, but Mm -hmm. also directed toward European immigrants from the South and East of Europe. They were viewed as Mm -hmm. other and different, and there were plenty of bigoted attitudes toward them. So I think that was responsible for a lot of it. That every previous generation of immigrants wants to keep out the next generation of immigrants. Mm -hmm, And when mm -hmm. you study American history, this is a very common pattern. And so this was prevalent in the 1920s. I, I talk about in the book, a speech that Coolidge gives, where he's actually saying, you know, we are a nation of immigrants. And he says, whether you trace your ancestry to the Mayflower or to the steerage, right? The cheapest compartments in those boats that came from Europe, you're still American as long as you believe in American principles. But of course, as far as he was concerned, there was no more room for passengers, mm-hmm. right? So he wanted to close that door. So I, I think that's the main reason. There were other economic reasons. There was, you know, kind of, again, a suspicion of the outside world, which was very common. And we don't want to be America to become involved in the outside world. And the corollary of that is we don't want to let outsiders into our country. Mm-hmm. But this was a widespread view. Uh, in the 1920s. And it persisted, as I say, until the 1960s, uh, when (laughs) immigration law was liberalized. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We've all had those embarrassing moments where maybe you've taken your shoes off and you realize like, oh no, oh no, that is not a good smell. Fortunately, Lumi Whole Body Deodorant is making it so none of us ever have to worry about that again. Unlike certain other products, Lumi is powered by mandelic acid to control odor in a new way. It delivers outrageous 72-hour odor control everywhere one might like to use it. In fact, it was patients' concerns about odor that originally inspired the OBGYN who invented Lumi. Fast forward six years and her game-changing whole body deodorant now has over 300,000 five-star reviews. And it works without using heavy perfumes that mask odor, which I really appreciate. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, which is my favorite, and two free products of your choice, like deodorant wipes or a mini body wash. It also has free shipping. And as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that's like 40% off their starter pack. So use code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That's L-U-M-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. Mother's Day is almost here. And I want to take just a quick second to appreciate not only my mom, all the moms out there, but anyone who has taken on the role of caregiver. You do everything for someone else. And now it's time to do something for yourself. And that includes starting with your skin. And I've been using our sponsor OneSkins products for a while now. And I have to tell you, I am really enjoying them. They are very easy to incorporate into my skincare routine. I am really liking the eye cream. And the secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It is the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And they have several studies to back it up. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, One Skin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code SHARON at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code SHARON. And after your purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support this show and tell them we sent you. Let's move ahead to the beginning of the Great Depression. And when things began to really not go well for the for a large majority of Americans, and they began to want a significant change in their government, and they found that change in FDR. And they right. found that change in a lot of the promises that he made, in the promises to pull them out of this dire, dire situation that they found themselves in when perhaps the Republican party was not offering them similar promises, was not offering them a, a solution 
to the fact that you're unemployed, you can't feed your children. But FDR did have, have promises that he wanted to make or that he did make. What made FDR so wildly popular? Yeah, popular for most, uh, mm-hmm. not not popular for my conservatives, but mm-hmm. we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in a second. Mm-hmm. I think FDR, as I researched and wrote the right, comes across as just a giant and he can't really ignore him and his talents. There are a few things I would say in response to your question. Um, the first is just personal charisma. Now, the 1932 election pitted FDR, the governor of New York, against the incumbent Republican president, Herbert Hoover. Mm-hmm. And Hoover's personality was not as vivacious, say, mm-hmm. as FDR. FDR had a way of including you in this adventure and making you feel as that he is speaking to you and together we're going to go through this. And many people responded positively to that. Now, there is also, though, this idea that because of the circumstances of the Great Depression, the way that America had conducted itself was no longer appropriate, that we needed to change the country in response to these changed circumstances. And this was the birth of FDR's New Deal. Mm-hmm. And it's not as though he went in with a you know five bullet point agenda. This is how I'm going to remake American government. But it was more, as he said in one speech during that campaign, he wanted to be and launch on a campaign of bold, pragmatic experimentation. He wanted to experiment. And mm-hmm. if something doesn't work, we're going to try again, right? Mm-hmm. And the difference, though, is it would be the federal government that would be launching these experiments. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at FDR, among his many, many qualities, among the many, many ways in which he changed America, one of the primary ones is he really expanded the role of the federal government mm-hmm. in people's lives and the the size of the government and its reach into our lives became dramatically larger under FDR and for the people who believed in the principles of Harding and Coolidge that was a no-no and mm-hmm. so this is where you begin to see the beginnings of the conservative movement in the United States mm-hmm. in opposition to FDR's revolution Mm. Who were those people? Who were the people who were like, I don't, I don't like all this spending. I don't like <laughs> yeah. all these plans. Get out of my life. Right. Well, a lot of business people didn't like it. They opposed the taxes and the regulations and the controls that came with the New Deal. A lot of Southern Democrats didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were part of FDR's party, but they always were leery of anything that expanded the reach of the federal government. Because mm-hmm. if the federal government could reach in one area, it could also reach in the area of civil rights, right? Mm-hmm. But then there were conservative thinkers who kind of thought that FDR w- was treading on liberties by expanding the scope of government, by trying to create a baseline of material equality. He was restricting freedom in the United States. And so this, this became the real kind of fulcrum on, uh, you know, on whether you were a conservative or a liberal. Many liberals would say, well, it increased freedom by giving people more resources and allowing them to make better choices. Many conservatives thought that the New Deal limited freedom, uh, not only by high taxes and regulations, but really by 
changing the nature of the Constitution. And so again, you see the importance of the Constitution with American conservatives as, some, mm-hmm. as an anchor, as something you always have to preserve. And so they really opposed FDR when he went beyond those enumerated powers in the Constitution, and especially when he tried to change the nature of the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and really go against this idea that the Constitution was a fixed document and the court had a role of just simply enforcing the the principles of that document. Mm. His bid to pack the court did not play well in Peoria. No, it didn't. No. And that's the real, that's one of the real moments where FDR starts losing some of his popularity. And um, Mm -hmm. it, it happens in 1937. And it was a moment of overreach. Every president has these moments, and this was FDR's. And it was one of the issues that contributed to a pretty good election for Republicans in 1938, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking. This is at Mm -hmm. a time, because of the Great Depression, that the Republican Party uh, was was not a significant force in American politics. But in 1938, they had a pretty good election, and they elected um, the man who would become their standard bearer for many of the next 10 years. Mm. I would love to hear from your research. What was the rhetoric like between the two parties at the time? Because right now, the party who's not in power views it as their job to 24-7 denigrate (laughs) the party that is in power. Literally, let's have a 24-hour cable channel or multiple of them. And this happens on both the right and the left, talking about what idiots these people in power are in. Was that the case in the 1930s? Uh, Yes, there are just fewer ways in which you could express uh, your hatred Mm -hmm. of the other party, right? (laughs) But when you look at some of the pamphlets and some of the literature that Republicans were circulating about FDR, he was described as a tyrant, as demagogue, he was Mm -hmm. ending American liberty. There were comparisons mm-hmm. between the New Deal and the rise of fascism in Europe, and certainly with the rise of Bolshevism in the Soviet Union during this mm-hmm. time. I think uh, heated, exaggerated, hyperbolic rhetoric is nothing new. Uh, we just have so many more ways of being obnoxious today mm-hmm. than, than we did in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. I will yeah. say this, though, Sharon, as it became clear that America was going to somehow intervene in the Second World War, the upper echelons of the Republican Party, the leadership of the Republican Party, they kind of dialed it back. And Mm -hmm. so you see in 1940 and 1944, the Republicans put up nominees running against FDR, who basically don't disagree with his with his foreign policy in general, and kind of don't want to get involved there. And that, I think, may be one difference between the late 1930s, at least at the presidential level, and today. It was kind of a reluctance to really attack FDR's foreign policy Mm -hmm. and war policy Mm -hmm. straight on. Yep. And you can see that in in, in other conflicts the United States has been involved in that would we'll we'll argue amongst ourselves inside our our own walls all day long, all night, all day. But when we are putting American lives on the line overseas, there's more of a hesitance to mm-hmm. publicly criticize 
the, because it's viewed as criticizing the actual uh, members of the military when you are de- when you're criticizing a president's foreign policy involvement in conflict. And that doesn't mean there has never that there wasn't a lot of opposition to things like Vietnam. But that has been true for many people throughout U.S. history. Hi, friends. It's Sharon. If you enjoyed a recent episode with author and public theologian Issa Macaulay, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you. No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor is an acclaimed podcast series that explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host and award-winning theologian Lee C. Camp brings you thoughtful conversations with artists, philosophers, politicians, and theologians like Hollywood legend Rob Reiner and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson about what it means to find true happiness and flourish in our everyday life. So don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. And tell them I sent you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I'm sure you are familiar with the Little House of the Prairie books or the TV show. Laura Ingalls Wilder was a very well-known libertarian and her daughter, Rose Wilder Lane, who helped her write a lot of her books was a activist libertarian who hated FDR and who wrote about her fantasies of, of assassinating him. There were a bunch of libertarian women. Mm-hmm. At this time, Rose Wilder Lane was one of them. Another was named Isabel Patterson. Of course, the most famous is Ayn Rand. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, you kind of see this, the role of women in the American right is one of the themes I try to draw out, remind readers of continually in the book. The way that, that people viewed FDR, I mean, he was an extremely polarizing figure. But at the same time, he was also an immensely popular one. And it shows you, though, kind of where the American right was during this period is because figures like Rose Wilder Lane, she didn't really represent a lot of people. No, she, Mm -hmm. I mean, her, her books were popular in Mm -hmm. the, especially the the little house books, but uh, her political views were not mainstream. No. 
And so this, no. this, this is the, this is the difference. This is because it took a lot, a lot of work to make these arguments mainstream, to put mm -hmm. them into the place where they could be at the center of public debate. And we're not there yet when we talk about the 1930s and 1940s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great point that it took, a, took decades to move some of the rights ideas into being viable political forces because we elected Democrat after Democrat after Democrat, the exception of a pretty liberal Republican in there when it came in the, in, um, the case of Eisenhower. But let's move into the 1950s. Not that there's nothing to discuss about World War II, there's plenty, but it's an aberration in time, right? It's, it's, it disrupts, as you just mentioned, disrupts a little bit of the development of political parties because we're dealing with an incredible world war that galvanized uh, people behind this, this notion of defeating Hitler, defeating Japan. So moving into the time period after the war, after the development of the Truman Doctrine and into the idea that we're going to elect a Republican president again. What does the American right look like at that point? Well, it's, it's interesting to think about because we often look back at the 1950s as a very small C conservative decade, right? We look at the baby boom is taking place. We think of the uh, beginning of suburbanization. We look at kind of the religiosity of the 1950s. There's a huge spike in, in church attendance. In God We Trust it starts uh, going on the coinage. We have the Pledge of Allegiance under God being inserted into it during Eisenhower's presidency. And of course, we have a two-term, fairly successful Republican president in mm -hmm. Dwight, Dwight Eisenhower. But you know, it's so funny is that the conservatives of the time really felt that they were under attack. They didn't like Eisenhower mm -hmm. for two reasons. The first is that Eisenhower didn't touch the New Deal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All these great changes that we were just discussing that FDR made, Eisenhower did not roll, roll them back. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And the conservatives didn't like that because they thought that violated the Constitution, among other things. And on foreign policy, Eisenhower was for containment of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. He was for trying to limit the reach of the communism, whereas the conservatives of the era were for rollback of communism. Mm -hmm. They wanted America to push communism back into the Soviet Union and then do whatever it could to topple the Soviet regime. And so for those two reasons, many of the conservatives of the 1950s didn't were critical of Eisenhower. Now, like I say, just like uh, Rose Wilder Lane, these were not mainstream ideas. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this idea that you want to overturn FDR and you want to, you know, risk a war with the Soviet Union, that was not mainstream popular ideas. But when you look at the main thinkers of the right during this time, that's really what, what they believed and why they didn't really like Eisenhower. Mm. What was the switch from isolationism to we got to get get out there and snuff out the communism, even if it means inciting conflict with large countries like the Soviet Union? What was the switch between isolationism and an aggressive foreign policy against communism? It really happens on the right 
in those years after World War II. And it really, I think, has to do with the way that a lot of these conservatives viewed communism as something that is just an extraordinary, exceptional threat to everything that they cherished. Many of these conservative thinkers were religious. And so communism, Marxist doctrine is atheistic. Mm -hmm. So they viewed that as a challenge to it. For the libertarians, as you mentioned, the people who believe in economic freedom, of course, communism means the abolition of economic freedom and central planning. So they hated communism for that. And then there was just the security threat posed by the Soviet Union, which really emerged from World War II as one of the big winners. You know, the, mm -hmm. the Soviet forces are throughout Europe. They're, they're in East Germany. They're in East Berlin. Communism very soon after the war takes over China, right? The world's most populous country. There was a sense after World War II that communism was on the march and that could possibly mean the extinction of freedom or a nuclear war, which could mean the end of civilization. Mm -hmm. So this really motivated many thinkers on the right to change their views on foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And so rather than being opposed to say, alliances like NATO, rather than being opposed to the what we call forward defense, which is stationing our troops overseas on a you know pretty much permanent basis in order to make sure that the conflicts are over there and not where we are, mm -hmm. whether it meant free trade, right, as a way to encourage the growth of our allies so that they wouldn't be tempted by communism. All of these positions shift on the right in the years after World War II. And the right by the end of the 1950s, for sure, is much more hawkish than it was, mm -hmm. say, in the 1920s, much more internationalist in its views and not the isolationist views of many conservatives during the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even early 50s. Mm. I don't think we can talk about conservatism in the United States in the 1950s without talking about Joseph McCarthy. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. And his like fake lists of like, I got a list in this folder. No, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But you know, the red scare and the fear of communism, as you mentioned, pervades the American right for decades, mm -hmm. decades, well into, you know, even the 2010s. <clears throat> So tell me more about your view on McCarthy. Sure. Well, I, in my book, The Right, I, I talk about how there's often a temptation within conservatism between mainstream acceptance or the political fringe. And so in my story, McCarthy is one of the figures who pulls the right toward the fringe with his conspiratorial views about communist infiltration into the U.S. government. I want to start by saying, though, at, at, originally, this fear of communist subversion was bipartisan. It was President Truman, a Democrat who started first loyalty programs mm -hmm. in order to get rid of communist party members or communist sympathizers within the federal government. But McCarthy was one of the things that ended that bipartisan tradition because Joseph McCarthy's claims beginning in 1950 were so outlandish mm -hmm. and so outrageous. He, he really delegitimized the idea of counter-subversion 
going after communists at home among many people on the political left. Well, McCarthy was, a, in my view, a demagogue. He made some claims that were accurate, but most of the claims he made were false. He also continually kind of upped the stakes going after high-level figures like George Marshall, right, mm -hmm. or, or Dean Acheson, high-level government figures. Eventually, uh, he becomes a political problem for Eisenhower. After mm -hmm. Eisenhower wins in 52, you have the situation where McCarthy is really kind of undermining not just Eisenhower's status as the most important Republican in the country, but in Eisenhower's view, really undermining the power of the executive branch of government. Mm. And so Eisenhower very subtly begins a campaign of turning the tables on McCarthy and diminishing McCarthy. And one of the figures he uses in this campaign to kind of push McCarthy out of the limelight is his vice president, Richard Nixon. <laughs> who had been known as a, as a cold warrior and a red hunter, an anti-communist during his rise to power. And Nixon goes on television and delivers a speech where he insinuates that McCarthy is doing damage to anti-communism. And this is kind of the beginning of the break between the Republicans and McCarthy. And it ends for McCarthy in 1954 when he's censured by the United States Senate and his last few years after that were just a downward spiral. He dies in 1957. But someone like William F. Buckley Jr., who in my view is the founder of the modern conservative mm -hmm. movement, he supported McCarthy at the time. He wrote an entire book defending McCarthy. But later in his life, Buckley would say that McCarthy did immense damage to the cause of anti-communism. Mm. But that was not the position Buckley held at the time, nor many conservatives. There is a real temptation sometimes to just defend somebody who you think is on your side against unfair mm -hmm. attacks or what you think to be unfair attacks. And that happened a lot with the conservatives and McCarthy. Mm. There is so much more to talk about when it comes to this topic. I could not just leave it here and be like, well, that was good up through the 1950s. We've got to continue to talk more about modern American conservatism. So I hope you'll join me for the next episode where we pick up where we left off. Thank you so much for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am truly grateful for you. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave me a rating or a review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All of those things help podcasters out so much. This podcast was written and researched by Sharon McMahon and Heather Jackson. It was produced by Heather Jackson, edited and mixed by our audio producer, Jenny Snyder, and hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. I'll see you next time.